Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a show designed to intrigue you, stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. Today we are back outside with our resident anchorite, Athanasius. Athanasius, are you here? Now it sounds like you're not talking anymore, is that right? Alright, well, we'll continue our conversation and we're going to find out a little bit more about nominalism, but stay tuned. We really have an exciting program for you today. That was Amanda Sparrow you just seen outside. I'm J. Dylan Proctor, and Anthony Alegria is here with us in Cord Purgatory. We're going to be talking a lot about nominalism today, but then we're going to also visit some interesting villains. You may have met the rector before, but also we're going to be meeting the dubious professor, Resurrectomancer. Then we're going to be coming back together and we're going to do church history. We're going to talk about anchorites such as Athanasius outside. Then we're going to talk about Cyrus the Great, and after that, we're going to wrap up the program with a devotional. So stick around, and we're going to head back outside now to see what Amanda can find out about nominalism. All right, so we're back outside with our resident anchorite, Athanasius. Athanasius, can you tell me something about nominalism? Okay, well, don't be sassy. Do you, do you have any information about them? But like, just real simple definition. What is nominalism? All right, so, so nominalism is, is the idea that if you call something or name something something, then it is what you've named it. Uh, can you give me just a, that's a lot of somethings in a definition. Can you give me uh, an example? Okay, so nominalism, an example of nominalism is if someone calls something good or um, useful, just because you've called it that, then it becomes good or useful. And you've handed me the scroll, which I'm sure has much more information on it. So we will continue to read this and research it, and then we'll talk about it more later. So stay tuned. Nominalism is something which can be quite hard to pin down. We could really use down-to-earth language and call it namism if we, we wanted to. But it's one of these ideas where it creates problems because it, it prohibits people from being able to differentiate one thing from another. It's really one of the the ideas in the world which stops other ideas. It's something which tears away at critical thinking. It, it tears away from our ability to create shortcuts in our brain and for us to even understand and reason in the world around us. N nominalism is quite antithetical to, to reason and rationality itself. And let's talk about this just for a moment because there really are a lot of problems with it. So what are some of the things that you see wrong with nominalism? Amanda? All right, so when we first hear about nominalism, I think it can be very easy for us to dismiss it because we go, okay, obviously, if I were to call this microphone chocolate, it does not instantly make this edible, okay? And so we're like, well, then that nominalism doesn't make much sense with the definition we've given it. But if we look deeper into what nominalism is, more than just naming objects other things or treating objects as something they're not, it's really looking into the essence of that thing or the usefulness of it and saying something is good or bad, regardless of what it actually is. Um, and we can see this a lot where really people are saying that the judgment of what something is is up to them, and no one else can help inform or um, evaluate what's going on. And so it becomes very difficult. And when you take out the idea that there are absolute truths, then every individual person gets to kind of decide for themselves. And of course, that causes issues with um, communicating and trying to have a dialogue and an understanding of the world, and also just how you interact with the world, if you're the only one who gets to decide if something is good or bad or useful or not. 
Anthony, what do you think? Well, um, I think that uh, definitely nominalism can be a negative because not only can it be delusional, as in like, you know, someone can learn a word and then misattribute the word, but then all the negative or positive connotations follow along with their misattribution of the word. So, you know, they regard this as whatever adjective or name that it is now. And so all the connotations follow. And so that it can be delusional in that sense, but it, it can also be manipulative. You know, so someone can, you know, intentionally misattribute an adjective or, you know, some sort of label to something. And, you know, that can really change the way that something that someone feels about it just because the names are super labels and names have super connotative power so they do well on that note we're gonna introduce a new character and let's go over to the dubious classroom of professor resurrectomancer welcome and thank you for joining me in my dubious classroom professor resurrectomancer what will we be resurrecting today well we have several items on the table that we will be exploring so if you don't mind helping me anthony not anthony number two let's see what we've got here Ooh, excellent. We have a Furby we can resurrect. It was last seen in the 1990s. It's a good time. Next, the Titanic. Now, of course, this is just a model, but if we were to really resurrect it, we'd do the real thing. Oh, no. Not Anthony number two, I'm sorry. This was your pet, not Theodore number three. We will try our best. An old shoe. That could work. Might be a little difficult. It is quite ugly. No, this is it. Today we will resurrect nominalism. With this concoction that I have created, the drinker will then not be able to tell what is real and what is not. What is right and what is wrong will be confused. Yes, this is what we will resurrect today. And not Anthony number two. You will be the perfect test subject. Please drink that. Let's give it a second to see if it works. Not Anthony number two, what, tell me how you feel. I feel like this is a teacup. Mm. Go on. I feel like it could actually be used as a teacup. I think it could. Mm. I think it worked, ladies and gentlemen. I think we have resurrected nominalism because we, we can see where he has called it a teacup, therefore to him it is a teacup. Excellent. Join us again. Alright, well now that we've been introduced to the dubious professor, Resurrectomancer, we now have a, a time where we have to sort out what is really wrong with this situation, because we really do need to be people who are capable of critical thinking and being able to use our discernment as we interact with the world around us. And of course, Resurrectomancer's current scheme is to resurrect nominalism, which as we look at our culture around, it is a very prevalent issue. People, they say, well, we're called this, therefore we're this, we use this word to describe that, and therefore we can, we can shape up the narrative of culture, and because narrative is all that matters, we can really do some, some heavy-duty manipulating of the people around us. Nominalism can be a big deal in terms of morality. When we look at our world, we see people have a really hard time telling good from evil, and even as we look at Professor Resurrectomancer herself, we have to ask, what, what's the deal with her? Is she, she good or evil? So what do you all think about Professor Resurrectomancer? Amanda? 
Well, I think, first off, uh, trying to resurrect a Furby is always uh, in the category of evil. Um, Certainly. We should stay far, far, far from that. Uh, But as we can kind of see with the the henchman, um, not Anthony number two, thinking that the shoe is a teapot. um, Again, that's funny. It's silly. We can dismiss it if we want. But uh, it goes into how people use the world around them. Um, As Anthony talked about, manipulating others is if I can tell them a narrative and get them to believe in the narrative, then I now have control to really decide where the conversation goes, how the conversation can be used, and I can continue to perpetrate things that are harmful to the world. And so when we say everything is based on how we define it, then if we're in power or we have exercise power over other people, then we can really manipulate others to get what we want. We, if we can get everyone to believe that a shoe is a teacup, um, then we can now, if, we have, if we're in the business of making shoes, we now have all the power to exercise and to continue to get people to do what we want them to do instead of actually calling people to think critically and logically about their lives. Yeah, and it really does shut down critical thinking. One of the issues with nominalism is that it basically allows people to put a mask over anything. Somebody can be really corrupt and wear a mask and say, well, I'm called good. I use good terms to describe myself. Therefore, I can't be the bad guy. I can't be bad. But that doesn't mean that it's true. People will say all sorts of stuff. It's, it really is a mask for very bad things. They can dress things up. They can put it in a nice costume. But that doesn't mean it's, it's what it really is. There's a, a, a lens that's, that's covering things up. Anthony, what do you think? What are your thoughts on Professor Resurrectomancer? Well, um, you guys covered her resurrection of nominalism pretty good, but, you know, I almost wish that there was a Professor Resurrectomancer to be actually resurrecting these things because, honestly, you know, um, this is... This is happening on like a cultural level where nominalism has become so popular now and it's kind of like resurrected in itself already in our world. So like, you know, the idea that there could be a Professor Resurrectomancer is like, yeah, cool, let's go get like an enemy to go stop this. But, you know, in real life, you know, there aren't the Resurrectomancers and there may be some, but, you know, most of them is it's just an almost like a, a naturally recurring thing that humans want to resort to nominalism. Well, and I think then that's why, again, we have to, you know, I think that's a great point. We have to be people of critical thinking because we don't have the caricature that we can go out and like be like, that's the bad guy. Because we have a lot of our culture has given into this false narrative. And so we have to be the ones that step back and say, okay, a lot of this is veiled under nice language and nice attitudes. So how are we going to differentiate? How are we going to judge when a person is trying to veil their true intentions when they don't look like the evil scientist? Um, So I think that's an excellent point, Anthony. All right, and we're going to carry on. We're going to actually go visit the rector now and see what he has to say about this whole issue. Anthony number three, it is time for your discipline. I'm just Anthony. No. I remember correctly, you are Anthony number three. And because I say that you are Anthony number three, you are Anthony number three. He was, in fact, not Anthony number three, but the original Anthony. Just because you call somebody something doesn't make it so. That's nominalism. It is not true to the Christian faith. Anthony number three, where are your pericope outlines that I told you to write a few weeks ago. I thought Amanda was supposed to write that. That is not true. I have said 
that you are to write pericope outlines. Therefore, you are to write pericope outlines. Where are they? Again, also not true. I was supposed to write them, but I think I'm going to let that one go. Less homework. Alright, well moving along in our conversation, I want us to talk a bit about taking the Lord's name in vain. A lot of times we think of, of taking the Lord's name in vain as sort of the sin of, of blaspheming or using an expletive or, or something that really takes and disrespects the name of God or maybe even the character of God. But I want us to take that a little bit further and I want us to think about this on a totally different side. And that is the side of nominalism. Perhaps the sin of taking the Lord's name in vain isn't just about how we interact with God, but also how we use the name of God to manipulate other people. I think one of the very practical issues that happens when people take the Lord's name in vain it might look something like a televangelist telling people they must give money or they must do something if they want to, to be blessed by God, or perhaps someone saying, you must go along with this policy or this ministry that we're planning because it's, it's what the Christian thing is to do, and people invoking the name of God to say this is the moral thing to do when actually what they may be planning on doing may be totally inconsistent with the nature of God. It may be very unchristlike in entirety, and they may just be using the name of God to manipulate people. We see this all the time when people say, well, oh, if you're a Christian, then you, you must do this. Even people who are, who are atheist or agnostic say this a lot of times. They say, oh, this is what you need to do because you're a Christian, remember? And people invoke the name of God to manipulate others. And I think that is one of the nominalistic issues we have within the church and I wouldn't just say for people in the church, but how people outside the church relate to Christians. They invoke the name of God when it's convenient, when they can use it to manipulate, and that's a big problem. What do we think about that? Amanda, what do you think on, on taking the Lord's name in vain as a nominalistic issue? Well, I think, you know, as we look at this and we say, you know, how do we participate in the life of God? There are things that we know that is about God's character. And we know that we are called to live in Christ-likeness. And sometimes the world, because it, we do live in a very complicated world, we have to assert good judgment of when an action is following what God has for us and when is it not. And so this is when then I think nominalism can really take over because sometimes we just we don't want to do what's right. And so, but if we can put it up in a nice package or if we can get others to put it in a nice package, then it alleviates our own responsibility in doing what we're called to do. And this is really, um, again, like you were saying, this is the essence of the commandment. Um, if you've ever, everyone watching, if you guys have ever studied the Ten Commandments, or maybe when you were in school you had to memorize it, and you can kind of just recite it, you know, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And we think that's really simple because, you know, like you said, we don't have to say an explicitive and we're good. But it has really how the people of Israel were called to live in a different kind of relationship with God. The rest of the world at that time their gods could be manipulated to give them what they wanted, and then they could use that god to manipulate others again so they could get what they wanted. And what this, what Yahweh is calling the people of Israel, what is calling all of us to do, is a different kind of way of living. And so you don't have to manipulate God to get good things. If you live a good life and do what is right, then that is how um, you achieve blessing. And so it's, it becomes more complicated in the sense that we can't just take it at face value, which would be, I guess, nominalism. But then it almost simplifies it again because it's not about uh, doing a checklist or not doing a checklist, but really living in right re relatedness, being a people of wisdom and understanding in everything we do. So, Very good. Anthony? Um, I really think that the... Uh 
the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain more in reference to, you know, abusing the power of his name. I find that idea to be pretty novel, especially, like, the way it fits within the context. And also, you know, the type of repercussions that that has. I, I think that that's a pretty, pretty great way to interpret it. Yeah. All right, we'll be back here in a moment with Hot, Not, or Sanctified. So stick around for that. For this segment, we're going to be doing some church history through the game of Hot, Not, or Sanctified. In this segment, we will examine two items from church history. They may be saints, doctrines, or any substantial feature from the history of the church. We'll present an overview of each item and then go around asking if these are hot theological inspirations or not, and you can decide for yourself. In rare cases when we cannot decide if an item is hot or not, it may be considered sanctified. This is only to be used in the rarest of cases when the item is too far beyond our knowledge for consideration. Alright, so for today we're going to be talking about anchorites. As you may have already seen, Athanasius is our resident anchorite. And now, of course, that's a bit of a joke, but we're going to be talking about it because this is something which we're oftentimes not familiar with, especially in the Protestant tradition. After talking about anchorites and anchoresses, we're going to talk a bit about Cyrus the Great, who is a bit of an interesting figure in terms of church history, not only because he lived a pretty good while before the Christian church came after the coming of Christ, but also because he is a Persian emperor. But he is someone who is a relevant character in terms of his policy and what he did to release the, the Jews from their Babylonian captivity. So we'll be talking about him. But for now, let's talk about anchorites. This may be something you're not familiar with, but essentially what it is, is there are people who, again, this starts about 1100 to 1300. Basically, people would say, I want to live a life of penance, of prayer, and of dedication to the Lord that is removed from life. And by life, they mean removed from the, the sort of carnal life of the world. And what would happen is they would come to a church and they would be walled up as part of the wall in the church building. In other words, they would have a small room, a small cell, and they would be sealed up in this cell. They would have a small window where they could look into the church. They could maybe be able to look outside. People would oftentimes come and they would talk to these people for spiritual aid or spiritual counsel or something like that. But the person in there would literally be sealed up. They would be part of the church. Interestingly, a lot of times they would have a funeral of sorts for these people before they were sealed up. A bishop would oftentimes come and after they were bricked up, they would put a stamp or a seal over where they were walled up. Now, you may ask, why would somebody do this instead of being dedicated to the world outside? There are cases where we see, for instance, someone like Colette, who come out of being an anchorist to be a more active person in the, the physical world. But there, this is a whole role that oftentimes we, we have a difficulty understanding. In just putting this interestingly into to context, even when we were learning about in biology that, that animals and plants have cells, a lot of times people attribute that to the, the cells that monks live in, but... Um, you just wonder if they're thinking about anchorites where they're really a little enclosed system. But all the same, anchorites are very interesting, and anchoresses are, are very interesting people. And let's go around and talk about this and decide if they're hot, not or sanctified. So we'll go ahead and, and head over to, to Amanda and see what Amanda's thoughts are. Amanda? Um, I think the, as I've continued to think not you know, about being an anchorite and monastic lifestyles, I think I'm going to have to go with sanctified. And my reasoning behind that is this is, it definitely is needed for a time. For a, and, and I think when we live in our culture today, it's all about productivity. It's about working. It's about striving and fighting. And, and, and we need to realize that our lives are not dependent on 
kind of this toil and hardship. Um, we need that time where we sit back and say that we're going to find life in merely resting and praying and dedicating ourselves to God. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we get to just sit back. Um, and so I'm going to go with sanctified because I think it is something that is needed, but it's definitely not something that is um, appealing to everyone, and it may not be necessary for everyone. But the, the essence of, of of taking time to contemplate and to pray is definitely something everyone needs. So I think I'm going to go with that. All right, so that's one sanctified. Anthony, what do you think? Hot, not, or sanctified? Um, I would say that, you know, there's ways that it could go terribly wrong, and there's ways that it can go terribly correct. You know, as we've heard from the little bit of church history that we have been doing, St. Colette and, uh, you know, some others, the um, I think that in regards to preparing someone, it could be super beneficial. You know, if you're willing to commit to that, especially for such a long period of time, that can seriously prepare you for, um, you know, ministry outside of the walls. But I feel like if you're going to spend your entire life in there, then, you know, that would be worse. So I would I would say in general, for sure, hot. All right. And my disposition on this, I'm going to take the, the same road as Amanda and say sanctified because I do see ways that this could go wrong. Actually, yeah, I'm going to stay with sanctified. <laughs> I started to say hot as well, but I'm, I'm going to go with sanctified. When we look at people like Colette, and to bring up St. Colette of Corby again, again, she spent four years as an anchoress, which is the, the female language when describing in that that whole situation. And then she came out of out of that, and she went on and founded a whole bunch of monasteries, very productive. Um, so there was that productivity, but also there was that life of penance and prayer. Interestingly, a lot of times you see imagery of, of people like Anthony of Egypt having gladiator-esque battles with people who are not actually there, but sort of with demons and devils and the spiritual warfare, and they're using prayer and things to battle that. So there's a lot of interesting imagery with that, but I think there is something to the life of penance and, and being cleansed from the, the temptations of the world that is interesting. All right, so Anchorite Athanasius, we do this segment called Hot, Not, or Sanctified, and I'm just wondering, would you consider being an Anchorite hot, not, or sanctified? All right, Athanasius, we've really got to work on your sass. I don't know what to make of that answer, but okay, thank you for answering it. We'll, we'll talk to you later. All right, and continuing on with our game of hot, not, or sanctified, we're going to discuss someone who's very interesting to the history of the people of God, and we're going to be talking about Cyrus the Great. He's had a lot of names. He is the Persian emperor, and he really comes into the picture for the, the Israelites, the, the Jews, the people who would be described as the people of God in about the year 539 B.C. Now, he was ruling long before 539, but he comes and he conquers Babylon in 539. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into the history of Cyrus the Great. We did that somewhat Wednesday in our Midweek Liberty program. We went to that, so if you would have interest in learning more about that, you can go and find Midweek Liberty episode 19 where we talk about Cyrus. But as far as we, we live today in the year 2018, many of us do not engage in history, but we do find inspirations in people who have actually done things that benefit the kingdom of God, even in small ways or very obscure and weird ways how history unfolds. So Cyrus the Great, long story short, he's the one who says, the people of God, they can be released from their captivity in Babylon. They can go back home and they're free to, to worship. They're free to rebuild the temple. And he really allows them to have a level of religious freedom that they did not necessarily have before. Now, again, there's still a subordinate group of people 
under the Persian Empire, the Jewish people, they're not their own nation, although they're back in Jerusalem, they're back in the area, they have their governor that's appointed there. They're sort of a, a semi-nation that's just subordinate to Persia. But Cyrus the Great, he has this mentality. Wednesday, we, we compared it a little bit to the, the Romans' policy of Pax Deorum, where they say all the gods must be worshipped. You don't need to be an atheist. You need to be out there pleasing the gods. The gods need to be pleased. Cyrus the Great, he wasn't quite like that, but I think that model that the Romans has helps us understand who he was. He was someone who understood that if people are going to be a healthy part of his empire, they need to be able to have some cohesion in their society. So I just want us to have a short discussion on this, and this doesn't we don't have to go into this real deep, but what do y'all think? Hot, not, or sanctified on something like Cyrus the Great or somebody who is not part of Israel, is certainly not part of the church, he's long before the church, but is someone who, who gives freedom to the people of God. What do we think about that? Initially hearing his story, um, or kind of hearing it explained, I'm reminded of a phrase I've, I've heard um, some people say, kind of in jest, but God can sanctify anything. And, and obviously we can't take that to its end. Um, <laughs> there are things that are definitely outside the realm of, of what is good. But but there's this idea, I think, where God uses people and calls people to participate in, in life-giving acts, whether they are accepting of um of God or not. And so I think that's really interesting. I think if we're going to talk about theological topics, it's definitely hot in the sense that we have this God that just calls all of creation to participate in things of, of love and redemption. Um, and, and so I, I would have to read more about Cyrus. I, I don't think I could call the person hot, um, but I definitely think there's some elements of his story that are good. Uh, well stated. Uh Seeing God work in that situation is is fantastic. I would I would say hot as well. But before I give that conclusion, Anthony, what do you think? Hot, not a sanctified. Well, um, I think that there's a couple ways to look at him. Honestly, you know, or obviously, I should say. But um, I think governmentally, hot for sure. The way he ran his government, definitely hot. Even though you know he was an emperor or king, but still, he ran it pretty well. And. You know, ethically, mostly, I can't think of many times whenever I was like, "Man, King Cyrus, why did why would you ever do that to these people?" So I would I would probably put a mostly hot on that too. But you know, religiously and all that stuff, he was probably into a lot of things that you know I would definitely feel weren't correct. So overall, I would say not. But you know, as far as he ran his government, definitely hot. All right, and that's a good place to wrap this up, and we'll be back with the devotional shortly. We're going to wrap things up with an encouraging devotional today. And one of the points I'd like to give you is do not eat uncooked Shabbat buns. I poisoned myself earlier this week. Um, I was at home. I was tired. It was late at night. I got home and I'm like, I'm really going to get myself something to eat. There was some steak left over. I got out of steak and evidently they sell these like half cooked Shabbat buns and I took and ate one and didn't even realize it was uncooked until I got finished with it. And Anyways, it, it was like eating razors in your stomach a moment thereafter. But that is how you do not get encouragement. That is not a good tool for liberty in life. To contrast that, we're going to talk about Cornelius and how to have a good tool for bringing our culture back to a better place. And you do that not 
by eating uncooked Shabbata buns, but instead by having forgiveness for people and in being willing to, to work with people who are going to be transformed into the kingdom. So let's hear a little bit about the story of Cornelius, who was one of the first converts in the Christian church. So the story of Cornelius, um, we read in Acts chapter 10, and then some repercussions because of that story in chapter 11. And so we're gonna, I'm going to give a, just a short synopsis of the story and then read some of the text. Basically, Cornelius is a centurion, and he apparently was quite a well-known one, and one of the things he was well known for was his devotion to God. And his whole life was wrapped around the idea of being a devoted Gentile. So he was somebody who wasn't Jewish. He was outside of the Jewish faith, um, but he still practiced the law. And he gets a vision from God saying, go to Joppa and get Peter. So he does that and they go to Joppa and Peter is kind of hesitant because again, this was somebody outside of the outside of Judaism. And more than just he was an outsider, he was part of the Roman uh, army. So it wasn't just like he wasn't part of their club. He was actively, and the people he worked for were actively trying to destroy Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So there's a lot of things going on around here, but Peter goes because God tells him you're going to go. And so he goes in there and he meets not just Cornelius, but Cornelius has call, called all of his family, everyone related to him and all his household, everyone that's working for him within his house. And he says, come and listen to this man named Peter sent by God. And so Peter begins telling them the gospel. And this is where I'm going to pick up in our scripture. It's Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 44. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for him some days. So later on, Peter goes back to the council, the, the kind of the leaders, the group of leaders in Jerusalem, and they're like, okay, you have to explain this to us. You went and ate. Basically, you identified, associated yourself with somebody who's actively trying to harm us. And Peter begins to tell them the story of how God had called Cornelius to invite Peter to his house to tell him the good news. And so Peter, um, if you'll jump down with me in your scripture, Acts 11, starting with verse 15. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it was on us at the beginning. And I remembered that the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? And when they, they referring to the people who were kind of upset that Peter had gone to talk to Cornelius, when they had heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is our kind of quick story of Cornelius and Peter. And I, I really encourage you to read the whole text, um, chapters 10 and 11, maybe a little bit before and after. But we're going to begin to talk about what does it mean to participate in the kingdom of God? And then what does that call us to interact with people who maybe we don't get along with, whether that is something small or, or, or big like it was for Peter and the Roman Empire? Yeah, and the whole thing with this is our culture really does has, it's, it's lost the element of forgiveness. And even as we look at the story, 
Cornelius is a, a centurion, and he has a really interesting backstory as well. And being one of the, the God-fearers, the people who have, they have a relationship with the God of Israel, but they're, they're sort of in a weird place. Peter comes to a time where there's this dispute going on in the early church on, do Gentiles need to become Jewish? Do they need to fully embrace the Jewish customs in order to be sanctified and to be made holy? Do they need that? Can they interact with the, the kingdom of God at all without without becoming fully Jewish? what What's the deal here? Of course, they're Gentiles. They can't become ethnically Jewish. So there's this whole deal with there's two sort of different realities. But what we find from the story is that the early church embraced Cornelius and his family, not because of any sort of identity that they had or any sort of worldly standard, but simply because of one thing. They were interested in answering the call of God in their life. And that was the metric that that Peter really works with. And as we look at this story, we, we see an awesome place where, where people are coming together, they're, they're overcoming differences to actually tr- be transformed, not into any random thing. It's not sort of a, a concession where the kingdom of God says, okay, we'll, we'll let you be a pagan, but we'll, again, we'll have some room for you over here. No, they are converted to Christianity, but in that we see transformation and we see a lot of good things happening. We always have to be keeping the, the door open to bring people in. We must be people who are who are looking to bring people into the kingdom of God, and that's something we need to aspire for. It's a very encouraging text, and I think it's fascinating. Well, on that, we're going to wrap up our program today. I thank you so much for, for watching. I hope you've enjoyed meeting some of the characters we've, we've presented you with today. And if you enjoyed our program, please share our content. If you'd like to support us and help us out, just take and copy one of our links and share it to some of the people you know that will help us out tremendously. You can download our free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and CastBox. You can download it and take it with you. And, of course, you can find us on YouTube and Facebook by doing a search for Kingdom of the Logos. And I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. This is Amanda Sparrow and Anthony Alegria. We thank you so much and have a blessed day.